This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Celine Gelgich, a clinical psychologist and founding director of Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a company which specializes in obsessive compulsive disorder. In the episode, you'll hear the very reason why Celine started her own business and the challenges that came with it. You'll learn about stress, perfectionism, and decision fatigue, emotions that are often felt when running a business. She'll provide tactical ways to combat these emotions and share the importance of managing your own mental health when running a team. Let's jump in. Celine, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be so much fun. I'm really excited as well. I've known you for a little while, so it's a mm-hmm. pleasure to be um, talking to you in a professional sense and I've watched your journey from afar and I'm looking really forward to getting to dive deep into that. So you are a clinical psychologist, the founder and director of Melbourne Wellbeing Group and I have to say I love that name. I don't know how you got that name. You did really well. Tell me about your journey. Why psychology? That's an interesting question. So I, in high school, had an inkling that I wanted to do something that involved working with people. I, at one stage, was really closed-minded and thought, you know what, criminal law sounds interesting, maybe I could do something like that, and then really started getting to kind of having to choose subjects and all that sort of stuff and was like, actually, you need psychology to understand criminal behaviour, and that opened me up to psychology, and then I was torn between the two, and then after year 12, went into psychology, and I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do, but it wasn't until... After I finished my doctorate degree, which was like seven and a half years later, that I knew I wanted to work with people with OCD. So it was a bit of a journey, kind of just exploring different things, getting to know different areas of the field, different client populations to work with and all that sort of stuff. But I did know that I always wanted my own private practice. That's something I knew that I wanted to do from pretty early on. But I knew also that I didn't want to do it straight away. I wanted to get a bit more experience and all that kind of stuff, get a feel for what it's like working in a hospital and all that sort of thing as well, which is what I was able to do. So I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Worked in a different private practice for a little while and then thought, okay, I'm ready to do this for myself. But it was a bit of a scary journey. (laughs) Yeah, it is a scary journey. And I was going to ask, you obviously specialise in OCD. There is obviously a variety of different areas you could have specialised in. What draw you to OCD? I was working at the OCD inpatient unit at the Melbourne Clinic, which is a private psychiatric hospital here in Melbourne, located in Richmond. And that was my last placement, working with them. And it was really wonderful because I was able to really immerse myself in that program, learn everything about it. The team were fantastic and still are. And I really enjoyed working in that field. And I was like, this is it. I think this is it. I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I was like, this is what I need to be doing. And I knew I also wanted to work with young people. So I was like, okay, if I focus on OCD, 
really build myself in that area. I can do that across the age range. So I was able to kind of fulfill my needs in terms of working with client population on that level as well, rather than trying to be a jack of all trades, if that makes sense. That's kind of what made me fall in love with that area. That's great. And when did you start Melbourne Wellbeing Group? I signed the lease for Melbourne Wellbeing Group in December 2012. So we're coming up to our ninth year at the end of this year. But we didn't start seeing clients till like February the following year. So I count that as our birthday, so to speak, if that makes sense. Because the first couple of months was just like fit out and all that sort of thing. So yeah, almost nine years. So it's been a long time. When we first started, we were called Therapy 5-HT. 5-HT is the shorthand for serotonin. After about three or four years, we just did a rebrand. We kept our logo and stuff, but did a rebranding to make it a bit more in line with what we wanted to achieve for the company and for the clinic going forward and with expansion and that sort of stuff too. So we were like, okay, we need a rebrand. So we managed to pull that off and we weren't that big at that stage. So it was a bit easier to do as well. We were starting to think of things like direction and mission and aims and all that kind of thing. And that really helped us inform what we were going to do and why. It was a bit of a change. Like the mentality from starting the clinic to what it's like now has been such a learning curve. Everyone has that moment where they go into their own business. So Mm -hmm. what was the driver for you? Were you trying to solve a problem from a psychology delivery Were you thinking you could do this better? You always wanted your own clinic. You mentioned that. But what drove you to start the business? Having parents have a retail store and growing up in business, I think it's just something that it felt natural to me. But like you said, I didn't quite know what that was going to look like. And while working at the inpatient unit, what I started to notice was this huge gap and a lack of advocacy for people with OCD in Australia and a really huge misunderstanding because It's often thrown around as an adjective. It's described as like this cutesy quirk that people can have, but people really don't understand the debilitating nature of having OCD and just how much it can impact people and families and loved ones. And so I was like, this is a huge gap that there's so much work that can be done here. And so that's what fueled me to go into that area and to keep expanding that. And there's just so much that you can do. That was really the driving force. And it's obviously challenging to run a business. What were your biggest challenges with getting the business off the ground? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So many things. Knowing my numbers, (laughs) which is something you guys will be big on. I am not a maths person at all. It's probably why I married an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) And I often, I know we've had like so many conversations where my husband will be like, you're running a business. You should know this stuff. And I'm like, yes, I should know this stuff, but I don't know this stuff because at uni, we get trained as clinicians. We don't get trained in terms in how to run a business. I'm a health clinician. That's what I am. I'm not a business person. I didn't do an MBA. I had to learn all this stuff out of uni, which is so hard. Like, you know, you rely on people like your accountant, you rely on if you've got a lawyer to help you with drafting contracts and all that kind of stuff. They're professionals. You rely on them to help you guide you through that process. But I think there's a huge responsibility on you as a business owner as well to do your own learning and to recognize where the gaps are in your knowledge so that you can then follow that up with someone and fill those gaps and really expand your learning. And no, you don't have to do an MBA or some kind of business degree, but you can absolutely surround yourself with the people you need to help you learn. So yeah, the numbers, like I'm waffling a little bit now, but like what numbers was 
my biggest challenge. Things like marketing and all that sort of stuff. I'm a pretty creative person and I always love doing those sorts of things. So that was easy for me. It was really just knowing the ins and outs of knowing your numbers sometimes continues to be a challenge. In those early stages, who were the business professionals that did help you the most? And did you find that during that phase, you could have, not you necessarily could do things better, but those professionals could have helped you better or you could have seeked better professionals at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first accountant I had it was such a painful conversation for me to have to break up with that accountant. And I know I'm talking about it as I was breaking up with a boyfriend <laughs> or something, but like you do, you have such a personal relationship with your accountant, right? Like they know the ins and outs of everything and they've become such a huge part of your life. And that was a difficult conversation because in terms of growing my business, I knew I was with the wrong person. I think that person that I was with served their purpose for when I was working as a solo practitioner in private practice. They were extremely helpful and fantastic. But in terms of growing to become a group private practice where I wanted to recruit other clinicians and that kind of stuff, I knew I needed more. So then I went shopping basically and looked to see if I could find a firm similar to yours in a sense where you provide the full package, where you've got a team that provides the full package in terms of not just helping you understand what you're looking at, but to help you project into the future, to help you grow as a business and to really understand what your needs are, to sit down with you and all that sort of stuff. So after making that hard decision, I haven't looked back. So that was one of the biggest things that was helpful. And if you had your time again, what would you do differently in those early stages? I think if I had my time again, I would not have waited so long to think about growth. Growth was something that scared me a lot. And I think it's because I was holding narratives from my own family when they were thinking about those things and they were worried and scared about it because it was foreign to them. I hung on to that narrative, but I think I hung on to it for too long. It's something that I absolutely could have probably done three or four years earlier. I wouldn't say I have a similar journey, but early in my career when I became a partner and even an accountant leading into partnership, I was like, oh, it was like imposter syndrome where you're like, yes. am I really going to be this person and yes. can I grow and be a really successful accountant? It's never been mm -hmm. done in my family or I didn't come from a family that had businesses, but I'm like, we didn't go to, we won't had it, didn't have a massively privileged life from an education yeah. perspective, but yeah. I had a similar journey and I have to say my wife was a big part of that. She actually supported me and said, no, you can achieve everything that you want yeah. and what you want was that it was like I want that but I never thought yeah. I could have, want that and I think for me I had a very similar journey and until I mm -hmm. knew no 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 we could do whatever we want Absolutely. it was really interesting and and yeah. the shackles comes off when you go no mm -hmm. I want it and I'm going to take it so yeah. it's really interesting you say that and look obviously you mentioned that you're obviously a clinical professional mm -hmm. first and if you could give advice to health professionals. So mm -hmm. I was trained as a business person. I did a commerce degree and running a business and advising is quite easy, but our health professionals are important to society mm -hmm. and important to them building businesses to provide these services. What would you say to them that want to start their own business if you had to give them advice? One of the things I would say is don't hesitate to shop for, and I say shop for, look around for <laughs> a really wonderful accounting firm. And don't be afraid to talk about what all your needs are. 
and what you're thinking of. Allow yourself to dream big. Allow yourself to let go of those shackles to be able to go, okay, if this is what I want, if this is what I'm envisaging for myself, who is going to help me get there? And to have those open conversations because some firms are more pricier than others and whatnot. Also, the quality of service that you're getting is so different. And that's the stuff that's worth investing in because that's the stuff that's going to help you grow. Be mindful of where you invest, but also that's the stuff that's worth investing in because that's the stuff that's going to keep on giving and is going to allow you to take those shackles off and to be able to reach those goals. And I'm not just saying that because you guys are an accounting firm on this <laughs> podcast. I strongly believe that. Like, that's your foundation. Without that, you won't really have much to go off. And we don't act for you. So you're obviously no, advocating. You don't. It's totally independent. <laughs> <laughs> so you are advocating for the industry. Yeah. And then, look, yeah. some accounting firms do a great job and some need to probably improve in that area. And we do provide business advisory and consulting in that space. So it is a passion of mine. And the reason why I set up this podcast to give back to young entrepreneurs and business mm-hmm. owners to help them grow. Now, you mentioned university and not studying business. And I had mm-hmm. this question around that. Do you think there should be subjects offered in the science degrees around business? Damn straight. (laughs) I was saying that to my husband this morning because there was a question that came up and I was like, oh, I don't know. And he was like, still? And I was like, yes, still, I don't know the answer to this question. I'm sure my accountant does. And I said to him, I'm like, I wish there were subjects like this. And I remember when I was working with my business coach who helped me with a lot of this stuff, who's also a psychologist. So it was industry specific knowledge that I sought. She was also saying a lot of this stuff going, I wish they taught this at uni. And all of us would say the same thing. I wish we had, especially in postgrad as electives, like not everyone wants to work in private practice, totally get that. But if it's an elective and I do, and I know that I do, I'm going to take that subject up in terms of at least what the basics are, how to get started, how to set up contracts, And even having the different types of contracts, different types of business models, all that kind of stuff, which when you start, it's so overwhelming when you start thinking about all of that stuff. And if you don't have anyone who is familiar with it to guide you through it, you just become a fish out of water. Like it can be really confronting. And if you're already a little bit hesitant and a little bit uncertain, then it becomes too hard. You're not going to do it. And then it goes in the too hard basket and then you stay stuck. My next question is about growth. I've seen you grow your business. You've done an amazing job from what I can see from the outside. Generally with growth, it requires either monetary investment and or a lot of time. And you normally have to go backwards for a period of time to go forwards. How did you go through those challenges? Oh, that was so painful. So much pain. (laughs) (laughs) All of those things apply to us. I don't think I paid myself a wage for a really long time. And I'm lucky that in a sense that we didn't need much when we were younger. I'm still young, but like like starting off and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time, like having my husband earning a wage, he's not running his own business. So that helps a lot. And he was extremely supportive. So that, of course, helps a lot too. So yeah, like there's financially, it becomes a struggle, but you know where you're going, right? And you kind of hang on to that hope in terms of focusing on that growth. And we did have to go backwards before we went forwards. Like we had expanded the team a little bit and then like culturally in terms of team culture and stuff, we had to make adjustments because when I was talking to my associate director, we're having meetings and stuff in terms of where we want to go and what we want the practice to look like. Things just weren't fitting. So we had to make really difficult changes and go backwards in that way. 
before we move forward again, those moments are so painful. Like you think to yourself, why did I do this? What am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing. Who do I think I am? Like, you know, you start experiencing so much stress and all of this kind of stuff, but you need to surround yourself with support. And it feels so lonely sometimes as a business owner. You could be going through some stuff as a business owner, but you also have to carry your team. You have to support them. You're there for them. They're calling on you all the time. As a healthcare worker, you also have your clients calling on you. So you're constantly giving, give, 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 give. And yes, it's rewarding at the same time. I'm not complaining about that at all. But at the same time, you have to nurture your own self too. And so being mindful of how you look after your own health and your own stress levels and all that sort of stuff is really, really important. Well, you have beautifully introduced the next area that I want to talk about, which is stress management. You've had various areas of expertise, but I want to talk about that. Stress management is really important. You just beautifully explained why. And it's very commonly used, right? Can you just define what is stress? I'm going to use like the layman's terms. Stress is when your mind and body is experiencing pain and not physical pain, like just difficulty, hardship, like when you're experiencing racing thoughts and you don't know what to do with them or it's three o'clock in the morning and you're just still awake because you're trying to problem solve what you should have done, what you should have said, what you need to do the next day. When your body is feeling anxious or you're feeling your heart racing or you're feeling, you're kind of feeling there, but not there, if that makes sense, almost like a dissociation. Like there's so many things that come under the mean, what does stress mean? And it can look so different to so many people, but stress is basically discomfort. Whenever we're feeling discomfort in our mind or in our body, we're feeling stressed. And is stress considered a medical condition like anxiety? Yes and no, in a sense that stress can cause a lot of physical conditions, right? Stress can cause anxiety, stress can cause physical pain, stress can cause lots of things. But I don't think if we were to be black and white with it, I don't think it's classified as a medical condition, if that makes sense. Yeah. And obviously business owners, you just illustrated how difficult it can be to grow a business, be everything to everyone, employees, clients, Mm -hmm. staff, patients. And I want to talk about how you personally went through managing stress. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the strategies that you took on board during that price and the advice you'd give to business owners that are currently going through that? One of the things that I thrive off and still helps me to this day is surrounding myself with people that I can talk to. And what does that look like? That looks like colleagues of mine who also have their own practices where we catch up once a month and every quarter we go away for a weekend together and we call them get it done retreats. So every quarter we'll go somewhere either interstate or locally where we all take our to-do lists and I think everyone can relate to this, the list, the actual to-do list, not the to-do list that everything gets part, like, you know, the to-do list that never actually you get to. (laughs) Yeah. You're nodding because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I do. (laughs) That to-do list, we we take that with us and we spend four days of uninterrupted time where we just smash it out. And you're there with other business owners as well. So if you have a question, you can ask it and you troubleshoot together. And you just know that it's not a lonely experience anymore. And there's that camaraderie and checking in with each other. So talking to others who are in a similar situation to you and talking with them was one of the biggest things that helped me out. Spending time with family and friends is something that helps me recharge my batteries. 
So for you, it's about having to think about what's good for your soul, what helps you recharge your batteries. And so make sure that you tap into that. I also love reading fantasy fiction where I can just lose myself for a few hours. Think Game of Thrones, think Raymond Feist, all that kind of stuff where I can just sit for half an hour, an hour, and I make sure I've got time for that every day before bed. So I'm like clearing my head, then making sure I get a good night's sleep. And I'm known to be a night owl. So yes, my good night's sleep isn't until like 1am, but then I start my day a little bit later. So I know I'm still getting a good seven and a half hours of sleep, which is enough for me. So it's kind of learning how your body works, learning to know what you need and what your body needs and working off that. So they're the things that I found really helpful. And as well as having a good team of people around you that you know you can trust and you can rely on. And that support is absolutely huge. Really good advice. I have that around me. I call them mentors. There's a few clients that probably, if they're listening to this, they'll know that they're one of those. Mm -hmm. I have about four or five mentors and I find like-minded people or people that have actually ahead of me where they've they're either 10 years older than me or a partner in a practice and I just talk to them every you know I have scheduled catch-ups I don't do the getaways they get it done quarterly meetings which is actually (laughs) a really good idea I think that's a really good one but I think that having mentors is a really Mm -hmm. important part of a business journey so I spoke to our marketing manager earlier about that so having a mentor and having someone outside of your inner circle to help you is really, really good. The other area I want to touch on is, and we see this with our clients, is perfectionism. So yeah. I don't know if you practice in this area or if even mm-hmm. if it's considered a condition, but yep. business owners love their business, their thing. They want it to be perfect. And as mm-hmm. you know, when you're growing something, you need mm-hmm. to involve lots and lots of people. So therefore... Yep. You need to let go and it can't be done the way you do it. Mm -hmm. And that is a challenge. So what causes perfectionism in people? Some have really bad cases of it and some have mild. What causes that behavior? Perfectionism, I would say, because I see it a lot in my clients with OCD and I would call myself a recovering perfectionist, (laughs) although maybe some of my mentors might be like, really? When did you start? Because you never stop kidding. But Absolutely. Like it really is almost like a personality trait where we have, sometimes we can be rigid in our thinking. Like we think a bit more black and white or we like things in a certain way. We might not be as flexible. So we've got to learn some of this stuff as we, like you said, learning to let go. What does learning to let go mean? Well, it means being flexible in your approach to something and being open to other ideas being open to then thinking from work perspective, going, okay, if this is the outcome, doesn't matter what it looks like in terms of how we get there, as long as we get there, because everyone does have a different way of doing something. Like, for example, in my instance, working in the area of OCD and marketing myself in that area, lots of people find out about you, but I'm only one person. And there's only so many hours being a service business. There's only so many hours in a day that I can see people, right? which means there's going to be a cap to the limit in the people that I see. But what I can do is share that knowledge with other clinicians, which is what I've done in my team. Passing on that knowledge doesn't mean that they're going to do it exactly the same way as me. They'll use the same knowledge as I do, but their style will be different. How they connect to a patient will be different. How they 
write their case notes might be different. How they explain a concept might be a bit different because their experiences are different, but it doesn't mean they're doing a different thing. They're doing the same therapy or the same form of therapy, but their way of doing it is different. And I think you do, if you don't allow yourself to let go in that way, then yeah, growth becomes stunted. And at the same time, We have to allow our team members to flourish and to be their own person as well. When you let that go and you see that actually this is working, this is okay, then the shackles come off. And I think going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, that family narrative, I know some of that for me was like perfectionism was coming in on that because I know my dad, for example, would often be like, well, no one's going to do it like I do. And I was like, well, yeah, of course they're not. But it doesn't mean that you can't do it. So I think for me, that narrative is something that I had to let go of and I had to be really flexible with and start to not think so rigidly for my own self. And it's a real struggle. And so how can we deal with it? One of the ways of how we can deal with perfectionism, the first step is just being aware of it, being aware of what your internal narrative is. What are you telling yourself when these things are happening? When someone is doing something and you get that internal, ugh, feeling yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's like checking that and going okay just sit with this for a second let this person finish or let me see how it looks and then we can talk about it together if it's totally off the mark because you might surprise yourself you might be like oh actually that's probably a more efficient way of doing it or that's whatever else right so we lose these creative opportunities when we don't hold back and just notice what that internal narrative is and check the reaction sit with that reaction, just kind of let it sit, even though it's uncomfortable, right? You're sitting there and you're in pain. You're like, oh my God, you've got to hold on to that feeling and let the person do what they're doing or your team do what they're doing until you can see what the outcome's going to be. Cause it might be different. Yeah. And I, and I find perfectionists always say, oh, I, it's too hard to give it to someone else. It's just easier if I do it. it we have that in our business and I'm actually do not struggle delegating at all. It's a yeah. thing that I do very well at, but How do people like me that are good at delegating or not necessarily worrying about perfectionism Mm -hmm. teach someone else in our business that cannot Mm -hmm. let go? What can I do to someone to support that person? I would ask that person to choose something that doesn't have a massive consequence attached to it. Because a lot of the time, yes, sometimes it is easier to just do it yourself. And I have that thought pattern too sometimes, like, oh, my God, it's just easier if I do this myself than tell this person to do it. But then you're always doing it. And then you become resentful because the time you wish that you had to work on your actual to-do list gets taken up by all this other stuff that other people can easily do. So I would ask someone to go, okay, well, what's something that doesn't have a massive consequence attached to it? And if it's not exactly how you want it, At the end of the day, what does it really matter? Can you choose that one thing? Who do you feel most confident with? Pick a team member and just give it to them. See how they go. Give them a deadline and just see what happens. And hopefully by doing that in graded steps, doing more and more each time and then choosing riskier and riskier projects, riskier in terms of projects that have more bigger consequence attached to it, then building their confidence as a person to learn how to delegate. 
that's how I would do it. That is yeah. great. I'm going to take that and start working on that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good Hopefully advice. Hopefully it works for you. Because it is a challenge because what happens generally in our industry and probably many industries is mm-hmm. you go through the ranks and you become a technical expert in the thing that mm-hmm. you do. So in my business, yeah. it's you start with doing tax returns, you become really proficient at it, and then mm-hmm. you're told that you need to manage other people to mm-hmm. do those tax returns. And they're like, oh, but they can't do it better than me. I just want to do it my way. And I've got lots of those people in my business as well as in administration. Yeah. And it's something that is important and you need to learn to teach that. And you've just given me and all our listeners a really good insightful way of doing that. So I really take that on board. I want to touch on something a little bit different. Now, I was doing my research in questions today and, and I noticed mm-hmm. an article you wrote which mm-hmm. really caught my eye because – I've never heard this topic before, or ever, ever heard yep. this term about decision fatigue. What's decision fatigue? Decision fatigue is feeling like you just don't have any more to give at the end of the day in a sense of when you're at work and there are so many decisions that you're making throughout the day and there are thousands of them. It's not just about what am I going to wear to work if you don't have a uniform what are my kids going to eat for lunch? Or what fruit should I put in their lunchbox? Or what podcast should I listen to on the way to work? Like every single one of these things that we just do automatically, sometimes there's still a decision that we make, right? But we make so many of them. By the time we get to the end of the day, especially when you're a business owner or you're a manager or you're running a team, you get fatigued by that. Your brain's like, I've had enough. I've had enough of this. And so it's that feeling when you get to the end of the day and you pull up in your driveway And you're like, I'm just going to sit in my car for five minutes before (laughs) I I go in the house because I I just can't. I just can't get in there right now. Or you get in and, like, it explains that feeling when you feel a bit grumpy at the end of the day or you feel frustrated that that person has walked in for the 10th time with another question and people are asking your time. So I guess I'm explaining it through examples more than actually giving you a black and white definition because I think that's the best way of explaining it in terms of, this idea of like we make so many decisions throughout the day that we don't always make the best decisions sometimes because we are fatigued from making all these decisions. And so if you know that there are times in the day where you are fatiguing and you are feeling like you just don't have anything in you anymore, then if you know you've got to make important decisions, knowing when that time of the day is. So for argument's sake, if you know that you're on in the mornings, Leave all your important decision-making at work for the morning and anything after that, then it doesn't really matter because, again, the consequence isn't massive. I think we need to pay attention to the importance that we place on things to know that, okay, well, if I make a decision in this situation, for example, what colour font does something need to be for this blog post? Well, that doesn't really matter too much, right? It might matter to the perfectionists. (laughs) It It probably would. Yeah. So you might leave that stuff to those sorts of projects to the afternoon. But if you've got to make like, if you've got a budget forecast or you've got to make some other decisions and all that sort of stuff, and you know that you're not as fatigued in the morning or just after lunch, then leave those things for those moments. But yeah, decision fatigue is, it's a real thing. Like we don't realize, especially when you're looking after other people or when you've got a lot going on and you're making a lot of decisions in the day that it can actually impact fairly important decisions that we make during the day for projects and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And and I have to say for me, sometimes if I have a day like that and we go out to dinner and I have to Mm -hmm. pick what to eat at a restaurant, do you know what I do? I just wait till everyone else orders and then I'm like, I'll have what she's having because I just do not have 
the energy to do it. So I think you're right. I've never really thought of my tiredness at the end of the day as being decision fatigue. And sometimes I might not have a lot of consulting to do that day, but Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of sort of my own work where lots of decisions had to be made. And some of them can be really important. And I get home really tired and that makes sense. So really good advice. I'm now going to change the partner's meetings from 4 o'clock to 9am. I don't know that's going to go down, but that's good advice. You are still very early on in your business venture. So what's Mm -hmm. the horizon on for you? What's the horizon for Melbourne Melbourne Group? We have got so many projects in the pipeline. So in terms of expansion, we've just... I'm not big on opening up a second location because I think one is enough. <laughs> like that's enough for me. But like as a, in a sense of like we have kind of expanded our room capacity just to kind of fit more people in, but also to consider things like group therapy, which we've started doing for teenagers with OCD, which has been amazing because there's no one in anywhere really that does that at the minute in Australia anyway that we're aware of, or at least in Melbourne. And also for us, the minute, because we went through such a big growth phase, for us right now, it's about consolidating and making sure that we're running like a hopefully well-oiled machine in terms of systems, processes, procedures, all the fun stuff of business. Not really, but anyway, (laughs) all the important stuff, you know, all those sorts of things. So for us, we're just consolidating right now, making sure that the team's gelling, that we all know what we're doing. We're all on the same page. They're all kind of building in confidence. And then the next couple of years, we hope to kind of still be under one roof, but move to slightly bigger premises so we can offer different things. So that's kind of where we're at, but we're in a consolidation phase right now, which I think is really important before you take that next step. Yeah, agree with that. Great advice for those that gave you that, because you find when a growing business that if you keep growing year on year on year really fast Mm -hmm. and you don't consolidate, you can actually come off on the other side a poorer business and it can go go backwards. So good luck with the consolidation phase. Thank you. I wish you all the best with that. I did hear a rumour. Is there a podcast series maybe being launched? Yes, there is. (laughs) We just had our meeting yesterday. It should be coming out hopefully in early 2022. Yes. 22. Are we up to 22? <laughs> we are getting there. It's been a blur oh the gosh. last 18 months. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So look forward to that. Celine, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day and joining me on this episode. We took so many takeaways from your experience, not only in business, but in your expertise. So I want to thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Celine. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.